Hello and welcome to the final Backtracker History Show of 2021. And in this episode, we're going to continue with the festive cheer by telling you more about Christmas carols and the history behind them. One of the things that never fails to get me into a Christmas mood is the Christmas Carol. Now, did you know that the Christmas Carol service was invented in Truro in 1880 by a man called Edward White Benson? The story goes that on Christmas Eve, everybody in Truro would get disgustingly drunk and that the Bishop of Truro, Benson, was so appalled by this that he decided to lure everybody out of the pub and into the church with his new service. In 1880, Truro was a brand new diocese. It was so new that it didn't even have a cathedral, just a large shed. And Edward White Benson decided to invent the carol service, perhaps not to get the people out of the pubs, but more likely to get the carols heard. Before this, Christmas carols hadn't been sung in the church. They'd been sung in the pub. Carols were folk songs. Originally, they were also folk dances. The problem with this story is that there's no evidence that that's what motivated Benson, and we don't know a lot about him. He later became Archbishop of Canterbury, and his whole family had something of a mania for writing. His wife allegedly had 39 lesbian lovers. How do we know that? Because she kept a diary and numbered them. One of his sons was the eminent gay novelist E.F. Benson, Another was the eminent gay poet Arthur Benson. Arthur wrote the words to Land of Hope and Glory. He also wrote a diary of four million words, which is often reckoned to be the longest ever. His daughter, Margaret, was an eminent lesbian Egyptologist. His daughter, Nellie, actually stole one of her own mother's girlfriends and died of TB. I don't know about you, but I find this family fascinating and would be ideal as the basis for a period drama. Word of the Week And on this festive of days, I'm proud to give you... Bummock. Having a party? Then it's time to brew a bummock. It's an old Scots word for a large quantity of drink, purposely prepared for a festival or special occasion, in particular Christmas. In the 18th century, a bumuck or bumak was also the name given to a Christmas party hosted by landlords for their tenants. In the 18th and 19th century, Folklorists started to collect old folk songs and smarten them up, and people started to write new ones. But even these new ones were a bit incoherent, and the versions changed all the time. For example, this one that's playing in the background right now was written by the co-founder of Methodism, Charles Wesley. And that's how that particular carol went on for 20 years 
until another preacher called George Whitefield published a new version. I think this one you'll recognise. Wesley was not in the slightest bit amused by this, probably because the Bible is quite clear that the herald angels who appear to the shepherds say their news, they don't sing it. He wrote that he didn't want to be held accountable either for the nonsense or the doggerel of other men. Basically, he didn't want his name associated with this song whatsoever. But if you look in any hymn book, you'll see clearly that it's listed as words by Wesley and tune by Mendelssohn. But now folks, I give you the final part of our big stroll. And we end up in a place that has been hailed as the birthplace of the Church of England. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. And it's only fitting that for the last show of 2021 is the last part of our Big Stroll. And the first thing I have to talk about is Sunbury Cemetery. Sunbury was a lovely little village that we walked through and I have a thing about going around cemeteries and looking at the gravestones and remembering the people that are laid to rest there. In Sunbury Cemetery I came across William Henry Banyan who was 49 and the Chief Petty Officer with the Royal Navy on HMS Victory. He was the son of Joseph Nathaniel and Annie Banyan as well as the husband of Emily Martha of Upper Halliford, Shepperton. Before he went into the Navy in 1921, he was a crucible maker. But alas, his Royal Navy career ended when he died on board SS Strathnava of cerebral thrombosis. That's when a clot forms in the brain, keeping blood from draining out. As a result, pressure builds up in the blood vessels. This can eventually lead to swelling and bleeding, a haemorrhage in the brain. And I'd just like to mention him in particular because he passed away on the 9th of December, 1941, 80 years ago this month. Also, the Three Fishes in Green Street, who's one of the oldest pubs in Surrey, an officially protected building of the late 16th century. And another bit of Sunbury history. In 1889, a group of musical stars met in the Magpie Hotel in Lower Sunbury to form the Grand Order of Water Rats. The pub restaurant it has become was named after the horse that one of the entertainers owned, whilst the Grand Order was named because Magpie, a trotting pony owned by Richard Thornton, music hall owner, had been described as a drowned water rat. Our impressive final destination of this walk was a beautiful sight. 
Hampton Court Palace. Here are a few facts about this wonderful place. It was designed by Henry's closest advisor, Thomas Wolsey. He originally intended to live in it himself as a reward for becoming cardinal in 1515. But because of its grandeur, folk seemed to gossip thinking that it was much finer than any of the king's own palaces. So Wolsey, being smart and knowing what the king was like, said he'd built it for Henry VIII all along. There is a lot of symbolism in this building. For example, interwoven into the stonework of Hampton Court is Catherine of Aragon's royal emblem, pomegranate seeds, that were meant to represent the potency of her kingdom. Next to it was carved the Tudor rose, indicating how serious Henry was about their relationship that lasted almost 24 years, longer than his five other marriages combined. We've all heard the stories about how much King Henry VIII could put away, and for an appetite that large, you needed a large kitchen. And Hampton Court has the largest surviving 16th century kitchen in the world, where 200 cooks worked slavishly from sunup to sundown to feed 800 guests when Henry's entourage were staying in the palace. Now, I've seen cars smaller than some of the fireplaces in those kitchens. Hampton Court Palace also has a 16th century tennis court, and it's one of the oldest sporting venues in the world. To celebrate the birth of his only son and heir, Edward, Henry commissioned a series of spectacular tapestries, considered one of the finest pieces of decorative artwork from the Tudor period. The Abraham tapestries show stories from the life of the biblical prophet Abraham. Made with cloth of gold, each tapestry cost Henry the price of a warship. They currently hang on the walls of the palace's Tudor apartments. And something I wasn't aware of, the term eavesdroppers comes from the colourful little faces hanging from the eaves of the Great Hall looking down on the courtiers below, a reminder that walls have ears. The Great Hall, by the way, was a token of love from Henry to Anne Boleyn. And for the last fact I'm going to give you about Hampton Court Palace, the only one of Henry's wives to receive a Queen's funeral, Jane Seymour, has her heart and lungs kept inside a lead box hidden behind the altar of the chapel. And so ends our monumental walk at a monumental site. Who knows what adventures next year will bring. But let's remember the main reason why we're doing this huge walk. It's to raise money for suicide prevention Bristol, in memory of Sarah, a listener and friend. If you want to show your support, make your way over to justgiving.com and type in Backtracker. The donation page should come up. This page has been extended to the end of the year, so you've still got a little bit more time to make a difference to someone who needs it. But now I'm going to go off and clean my boots, get them ready for the next historical adventure.
If you've ever wondered when Christmas carols first came about, the answer lies in the 14th century, although their evolution dates back even further. It's generally accepted that one of the first Christmas carols ever to be recorded was the 129th AD Angels Hymn, according to the New Daily. Around this time, Christianity-themed hymns started taking over the previous pagan songs, celebrating the winter solstice. Other traditional carols thought to be from the Middle Ages include God Rescue You, Merry Gentlemen and While Shepherds Watched Their Flocks by Night. Even before Christianity, it is thought that midwinter songs existed to keep up people's spirits, along with dances, plays and feasts. But the idea of groups of carolers assembling in public spaces was a 19th century one. Called Waits, these collections of singers used to gather to perform for passers-by, who traditionally thanked them with tasty offerings of drinks or mince pies. It became known as Waisling, and is a tradition that continues today. And now I'm going to tell you the history behind some well-known Christmas carols. And we're going to start off with Once in Royal David City. Cecil Francis Humphreys was born in Dublin to a comfortable Anglican family. In 1848, she published Hymns for Little Children, a book of verse explaining the creed in simple and cheerful terms, which gave us three famous hymns. So to the question who made the world, the answer was all things bright and beautiful. Children's questions on the matter of death were answered with There is a green hill far away, while Once in Royal David City told them about where Jesus was born. The book was an instant hit and remained hugely popular throughout the 19th century. The organist and composer Henry Gauntlet put music to it a year later and it traditionally opens the King's College Cambridge Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. Cecil threw herself into working for the sick and poor, turning down many requests to write more verse. Much of the proceeds from hymns for little children went to building the Derry and Rappeau Diocesan Institution for the Deaf and Dumb. Good King Wenceslas was a real man, except he wasn't a king and he wasn't called Wenceslas. But he may have been good. His name was actually Vaclav and he was Duke of Bohemia in the 10th century. Poor little Vaclav had a difficult childhood. His father died when he was a child and he was brought up partly by his mother and partly by his paternal grandmother. 
these two ladies did not really get along well, especially as his mother was pagan and his grandma was Christian. Eventually, his mother solved the problem by the time-honoured method of dealing with difficult mother-in-laws. She had her assassinated, strangled with a veil to be precise. Years later, when Vaclav came of age, he employed the time-honoured method of dealing with overbearing mothers. He exiled her. After that, Vaclav started his career of do-goodery. He would potter about his dukedom, especially at night, giving stuff to the poor. An early biography says, Rising every night from his noble bed, with bare feet and only one chamberlain, he went around to God's churches and gave alms generously to widows, orphans, those in prison and afflicted by every difficulty, so much so that he was considered not a prince, but a father of all the wretched. Alas, Vaclav still had one family member left, his brother, Boslaus the Cruel. Even though he knew what his brother was like, Vaclav didn't take any precautions against him, and Boslaus and a few of his friends assassinated him in 935. In the carol, it mentions a faithful page, but where was he in all this? The one that followed him around in the snow? Well, his name was Padaven, and he doesn't seem to have been there at the assassination. Instead, he showed his Christian charity by taking out one of the assassins in a revenge killing before being chased, cornered in a forest, and killed. Boslaus was a cruel ruler, and the people started to wish for the happier days under the rule of Vaclav. Soon, they declared that Vaclav was a saint and he was also posthumously declared king by Otto the Great. Five hundred years later, someone in Finland wrote a song about the coming of spring. It was nice, a bouncy tune with nice bouncy words, but it was Finnish, and nobody noticed what a good melody it was until 300 years after that, when an Englishman called John Mason Neal found the obscure Finnish tune and the obscure English Bohemian saint and put the two together. It was published in 1853. Recent research by boffins at Bradley Stoke Labs have discovered why penguins don't fly. It's because they're not tall enough to be pilots. All right, Dave. Yeah, great. <laughs> you sound it. You in the warehouse today, mate? Yeah, got loads on. <laughs> Reckon uh, you ought to get that cough check first. Probably just hay fever. <coughs> Don't dismiss mild symptoms of COVID-19. They can be dangerous. If not for you, then for someone else. Don't wait. Don't guess. Get a test. Order one on the NHS COVID-19 app.
and our last carol we're going to talk about has been translated into at least 300 languages, designated by UNESCO as a treasured item of intangible cultural heritage and arranged in dozens of different musical styles, from heavy metal to gospel. I am talking about Silent Night, which has become a perennial part of the Christmas soundscape. The song was written just after the end of the Napoleonic Wars in German by a young Austrian priest named Joseph Moore. Moore's congregation was poor, to say the least, hungry and traumatised by the recent events. So he wrote a set of six poetic verses to give hope that there was still a God who cared. Moore was a gifted violinist and guitarist who could have probably composed the music for his poem but instead he sought help from a friend. In 1817, Moore transferred to the parish of St Nicholas in the town of Ubendorf, just south of Salzburg. And there he asked his friend Franz Zeva Gruber, a local school teacher and organist, to write the music for his six verses. On Christmas Eve 1818, the two friends sang Silent Night together for the first time in front of Moore's congregation, with Moore playing the guitar. Moore's parishioners loved it, most of whom worked as boat builders and shippers in the salt trade that was central to the economy of the region. At the same time, German-speaking missionaries spread the song from Tibet to Alaska and translated it into local languages. By the mid-19th century, Silent Night had even made its way to sub-Arctic Inuit communities along the Labrador coast where it was translated into the local language and called Unuak Opinak. The lyrics of Silent Night have always carried an important message for Christmas Eve observances in churches around the world, but the song's beautiful melody and peaceful lyrics also remind us of a universal sense of grace that transcends Christianity and unites people across the cultures and faiths. And in no other time in the song's history was this message more important than during the Christmas truce of 1914, when, at the height of World War I, German and British soldiers on the front lines in Flanders laid down their weapons on Christmas Eve and sang together Silent Night. In the day facts. And let's start off with the 25th of December 1066, when William the Conqueror is crowned King of England at Westminster Abbey, completing the Norman conquest of England. Also on the 25th of December, but in 1932, during King Edward V's Christmas dinner speech, his chair collapses. 
On the 26th of December in 1606, the first known performance of William Shakespeare's tragedy, King Lear, was held before the court of King James I at Whitehall in London. Also on the 26th of December in 1924, Frances Gum, aged two and a half, was billed as Baby Frances, makes her show business debut. She later went on to become Judy Garland. On the 27th of December, 1831, HMS Beagle, with Charles Darwin on board, departs England for a survey of South America, a voyage Darwin later said determined his whole career. On the 28th of December, 1968, the Beatles released their White Album, which goes to number one and stay there for nine weeks. On the 29th of December, 1170, English Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett, is assassinated before the high altar of Canterbury Cathedral by four knights. Well, my friends, that's the end of this Christmas show today. I'd like to thank Sam Roberts for lending her voice to the show, but I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank you, the listeners, for your support and kindness over the past year. Your comments and kind words have really helped shape the show and make it what it is today. The first episode in 2022 will be released on the 17th of January. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com So thank you so much for listening and until next time guys take care and look after each other <laughs>